everybody. I'm Patrick. This is Ashley joining you from Illinois. We have Trace Crow joining us from Georgia. It's a great day to be optimistic. And our guest today from Wisconsin, Josh Helling, Twitter homestead philosopher, chicken, duck, and turkey autodidact expert. He will send you black garlic in the U.S. mail. And I won't forget to put roses on your grave. That's a reference for, I don't know, anybody's going to get that one. That's a Rolling Stone song. So welcome, Josh. Not the black garlic part. No, that's uh, right. flowers. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Looking forward to the talk today. Once again, like usual, I got to go take care of the kids. So anything before we get started? No, thanks, Patrick. All right, Trace, thanks for being here. Exactly. Josh, thanks for being here as well. Let's get the show on the road. Cool. Wonderful. All right. So um, <clears throat> I'll just start by saying that um, I really like um, I really liked Josh as our first guest because um, I think I said something along the lines of I want to I want to uh, be true to my idea of um, talking to people who do real things um, and not just kind of like being like every other podcast and having every other guests that every other podcast has in like a infinite circle of podcasts. Um, and so I said, Josh, um, I think I would like as the first guest to be someone I could pluck from obscurity. And Josh said something along the lines of I'm obscure and pluckable. Um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So I, let's just start by having you introduce yourself, I guess with the, it's hard to introduce oneself, but with the, it is. Yeah, in the narrow confines of like, what do you do for real work, real work, and sure. what do you do on the farm? Sure. So um, I spend my days in the software product development world. Um, I've been working in that space for almost 30 years now. Um, I'm a long way from like actually getting to do useful things like write code. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm in sort of management and leadership roles, broadly interfacing the you know the business or the other sort of driving function that wants to do things with software and the teams that, that actually produce it. Um, so that's how I spend my days. But I think probably is not of a ton of interest for our conversation today. I spend my mornings and my evenings and my weekends on our small, I don't know how you describe it. I mean, small farm, homestead life, right? Um, so we live uh, on about 13 acres in the Dane County, uh, Wisconsin area. Dane County is home to Madison, um, where we raise a variety of poultry and Icelandic sheep. That's kind of the core parts of the operation. So when I say poultry, uh, that's laying chickens, meat chickens, turkeys, um, ducks, I suppose technically are poultry, but they're not really, um, they're more a, a, a tacked on part of the operation here than they are a focus um, and the sheep. Um, we also have some other tacked on animal groups like some bunnies that we raise for our own meat, um, some goats we use for clearing land, some pigs we're sort of trying to feel our way around in terms of how they might fit into the system here. Um, and, you do speak, oh. and you do sell some products. We do, absolutely. So um, yeah, we're someplace on the continuum between small farm and homestead. Um, okay. So we sell direct retail. Um, we have just in the last couple of months started going to one of the smaller farmers markets in the area um, where we're selling. At the moment, we're, we're sort of sold out of lamb. So we're selling chicken and, we're, and my wife's been canning a lot of stuff that's actually been selling remarkably well. Um, and yeah, so we have a, a, a nice standing set of, of egg customers who are sort of the, from a business point of view, kind of the lead into everything else. So we sell eggs and then the people who buy eggs from us 
um, almost all of our egg sales are kind of recurring. You know, so somebody will buy two dozen every week or four dozen every two weeks or whatever it is. And then that same customer base um, comes out when it's time to buy turkeys at Thanksgiving or when we have a new batch of meat chickens that are ready or, you know, there are some lamb shoulders back from the processor. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how we do it. Um, I was, uh, the, this, this question just emerged for me, but um, I never called anything that I do um, which I guess to, to, for people who don't know, I have land in Uruguay and have, I have nine acres, chickens. I did have cows before I came to the U.S. I'll get cows again, fruit trees, nut trees. Um, I never called it homesteading really until I got on Twitter. Um, I felt weird about the word. I don't know. Do you have any feelings about the word homesteading? I just feel like absolutely. it's like, I feel self-conscious saying it. Whenever anyone would ask me, I'd be like, you know, we're just, you know, living our life on land and seeing if we can produce some food. Like that's the way I always put it. Totally. I don't know about you. Yeah, I know. I totally hear you. I think all of the words are fraught um, to me and sort of where I end up with that is so screw it. I'm just going to use them and, and, you know, I'll define them in context where it's helpful. I mean, at the end of the day, all we're doing with any words is trying to communicate something to somebody. It's never perfect. You know, it's, yeah. So for me, homesteading implies um, a great deal more sort of distance and removal from society than I think we have here. Like, um, you know, I can only see a neighbor's house in one season of the year, but um, I can hear their lawnmowers and I can pick which target parking lot I want to be in in 15 minutes, right? Like, right. we're not um you know little house on the prairie by any stretch of the imagination and yeah. and and when i think homestead I, I think of some of that stuff right um we import plenty of things i mean we make a really conscious effort to be importing them from short supply chains that are relatively local but you know there's there's no sense in which we are you know i think a a, a really problematic and and not helpful definition of self-sufficient right where where we can just exist as this isolated bubble that's that's not right. the deal at all right, um, right. yeah, we'll, yeah we'll probably get into that more but i i sure. also think i use homesteading um now on twitter as like a shorthand for people who are right. landed in some way who are trying to produce for themselves or for sale like in the context of Twitter where people are using it, we know what it's referring to. It's a general constellation or whatever, and it's fine. But I, it's just so funny because I never would have probably used that word myself until like yeah. other people were using it. And I know it's referring to other things. Anyways, um, yeah. okay, so let's do a brief, how did you get into farming story? Um, sure. you, didn't, you didn't have any real agricultural background growing up? I didn't even have any fake agricultural background growing up. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin, but um, in the suburbs of the Milwaukee area. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have been more useless um, in terms of, of you know, <laughs> direct hands-on production of the necessities of life. Um, my wife and I both grew up in the suburbs. Um, you know, we both sort of followed the, the typical, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class kind of trajectory. You know, we went to college, we got white collar. Um, you know, oriented educations, you know, I went and pursued a career that was very much an indoor person's, uh, you know, career. Um, and we had sort of always had this notion very loosely defined in the back of our heads that someday when we were old and gray, um, grayer, and, and we were having these thoughts a while ago. So, you know, give me give me some slack um, that we would retire to a place in the in the country. And when our kids were Oh, I think like 10 and seven, probably this started when they were like nine and six. We just kind of had this realization, like, what, what do we really want to wait? Like, if we wait, then we're going to be old and it's not going to be a part of their lives at all. 
And so that, that led to us taking a couple of, of Saturdays or Sundays, um, you know, about a decade ago and looking at some properties for sale in the country. And I mean, the short version is we just sort of fell in love with the idea um, of getting some more space and getting hands-on. I mean, I'm a, I'm a hands-on learner um, very much. It, food is, I think, really important. And it's, it's importance is understated culturally, um, sort of emotionally, um, you know, economically, it's all kinds of messed up. And, you know, our desire was to, to disintermediate some of that for ourselves, at least. Yeah. Um, so we moved into the country really with no plan to speak of. Like we didn't, um, our, our plan was that we wanted to have some space so that we could um, dive into some sort of agricultural activities. Um, there's probably a really good and valid, you know, critique of our approach um, from like a rationalist point of view. Um, but I don't, like it worked out fine. It worked out great. Um, you know, we, we looked at a few places wait, so we what, had. Wait, what would a rationalist critique be, do you well, think? Well, I mean, you know, we, we, we didn't have, we didn't even have an objective, much less a plan, right? We didn't, um, you know, <laughs> like, how do you, yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the rationalist critique would be that, yeah, there was no, there was no method at all. You couldn't say you know, our method was unsound, our method was absent. We, <laughs> Um, we were we were following maybe maybe we had like an aesthetic northern star would, would be the way to put it um, oh, okay. and and yeah you know that's gonna bite or, or expose me to uh, you know plenty of cottagecore criticism I think you were maybe the first one to level that on, on Twitter and it's, it's it's fair and the ducks are cute but um, <laughs> you know our 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 motive was to to sort of transplant ourselves and our energies um, you know to take our slack time and put it toward. Um, something more directly related to our sustenance um yeah. and, and the rest oh sorry go ahead well the rest was details and, and i guess yeah. in, in defense of our lack of a plan that's why we didn't we didn't we didn't care i mean honestly like it was it was sort of critical for us that we could you know still get our kids to school that we would stay involved in the social world we were in that we could keep our jobs which meant connectivity right um so those things created a lot of constraints we knew those things we didn't know you know what kind of land we would need for a cattle operation versus sheep versus uh, you know greenhouse gardening, and we didn't care, which is why we let those other constraints sort of drive. You know, then we got here and and started to sort of orient here, being the the, the property we ended up buying, and sort of started to orient and and to learn what was possible and what was what was a good fit here. Right. Um, okay. So a comment and a question. The comment is. Um... My critique of Cottagecore is that I think the aesthetic part of it is great. What I would like to see more of is the grungy side, Absolutely. which I think is like the most of it, <laughs> most of the land yeah. stuff is very grungy and um, interesting, much more interesting than like the perfectly assembled apple bowl or whatever, you know what I mean? So I think like the grungy stuff is cool. It also shows you so much more like about what it is about this existence that's appealing the grungy side. So that's my critique. Mm -hmm. I just think like, yeah. don't go for the aesthetics, it's fine, but the aesthetic should include whatever, some kind some kind of the, the gross side. And then the junk pile, we had this whole conversation about. Yes, we had our junk pile off. Mine has gotten much bigger since then. I actually oh, almost really? dug that thread up to a pen because I, I cleaned out a chicken coop that was desperately overdue for it. And it, like this really surprising volume of material, like wood right. and very, like, I don't even know how I have it got in there. Obviously I had put it all in, but 
yeah, so now the pile's really big. But. Yeah, no, I think it's, like, I think that Cottage Curve critique is right on. I mean, look, I have very little patience for like the Pinterests of the world because they're, you know, they're, they're sizzle generally speaking without stake. And that's, that's not interesting to me. Um, yeah, totally. And then, and then the, yeah. the question I have for you is, um, did you ever, did you have any like aha moment um, that you can think of that really like, made you think about the juxtaposition between like indoor city life, white collar life versus this other thing? Um, you, you mean like around sort of the, the time when we made this, the decisions to yeah, make this change? Right? Like, that's yeah. A, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. And I don't, I don't think there's a moment, but I think there is probably a trajectory that follows. Um, I've, I've had a soft spot for like sort of near future dystopian speculative fiction for as long as I've been reading. And, you know, I think really the, um, the thing that appeals to me is that the, these imagined futures where it is not all working out uh, resonate because it is clear to me and it has all been clear to me for my entire adult life really that that it is not all working out right that the, the system will not hold the wheels are very certainly coming off the axis now you know huge uncertainties about you know time scale and nature and distribution of of that um you know collapse i suppose right it, it, it might be you know 100 years it might be 500 years it might be three years you know it might be you know fairly evenly distributed i i think an interesting thing that that i've thought about a lot lately is that it i think it is to a large extent already here and in fact that that i speak about it as a future thing still is just a reflection of a privileged position you know right. it is not so much in my face day to day but i think it is absolutely here um but anyway so so there had been sort of this uh you know this element of the, the josh arc forever that that involved an interest in that and um, I, I the moment that that is clear to me as an inflection point is not so much around our decision to move to the country, but a couple of years earlier, as 2008 started to shake down. And what I think became really clear to me and, and lots of other people, I, I pretend, I, I promise I have no unique insights about anything, um, was that it was it it being the, the system broadly, like in particular high finance and, and the, the rest of our day-to-day -day worlds, at least in the, in the relatively economically comfortable North that, that derived from global finance is a shell game, right? I mean, it's not, it is not, it doesn't all line up. And we saw that really clearly in 2008. I think we saw a little bit of it starting COVID and we're seeing a long tail of it kind of continuing out through supply chain issues and what have you. Um, yeah. In 2008, we had just like when the when that really started to when, when that crisis really kicked into its sort of final high gear, we had literally just closed on a new house like two weeks before. So it was kind of a terrifying time to be, you know, in a little bit of, of financial, uh, you know, adjustment personally. And our response, you know, we lived in a in a cool old house in a near in um, neighborhood in, in, in Madison. Um, was to buy a chest freezer. We bought a 13 cubic foot chest freezer. And I remember like going down to the basement and thinking, okay, well, A, I guess I feel more comfortable than I did yesterday. And B, who am I kidding? Like, well, this is, you know, it's this little freezer. Like, sure, I can have, have, a, have, a, have a couple of chickens and a roast. Like, this is not, this doesn't really move the needle, right? On, on where our, you know, existence depends on all of these big, long, complicated, and I think, um, largely not trustworthy dependency chains. Um, so it took a while, right? I think uh, it's weird to acknowledge the degree of 
exposure and dependence that we all live with, with it, which I think has a lot to do with how the, the forthcoming collapse is generally um, perceived by people, right? I think there's, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance to acknowledging what's right before us because yeah. it's so scary and we don't know what to do with that. Totally. Um, you, you know what? I, I'm wondering, I, we've never at, we've never really talked about this much, but like, <clears throat> what was your psychological journey like through doomerism and doomerism being like this thing where you're recognizing, oh my gosh, like th this is so precarious, this world, like there's so many things that could go wrong. Like the more you dig into it, the more you're fragile, you see the systems are. Um, and then being like, oh my gosh, that's super scary. And also I'm very sad about it, which is the doomerism thing. And then the optimism thing for me is just like, okay, I've processed this. It's almost like the stages of grief now, like acceptance and then next, you know, what's next? Do I just sit here like um, unable to do anything because I'm so angry and depressed or do I like, move towards something and so that's you know that that was my trajectory did you have like did you have a similar movement toward something positive or you know it's interesting I was thinking about this when I was listening to your your first episode when you you know talked a fair bit about sort of the origin of doomer optimism and and I guess maybe talked about not defining it which I think is a fantastic idea um I mean to me it's really simple right and and I think it's funny as I was listening I was thinking I, I, the tent can only be very big I think when when you have properly not defined but uh, allowed a connotative you know umbrella to fall out of the term doomer optimism, it, it has to be a big tent because I think to me you take it apart and it really just means two things. The doomer side means you are like honestly perceiving what's happening. It's not <laughs> difficult. It's not tricky. It's not subtle. Like there is no question. You can pick your flavor, maybe right. You could right. be a fossil fuel oriented doomer or a climate oriented doomer or or whatever. I mean politics. You know, pick it. It doesn't matter. I would yeah. probably would choose E all of the above myself. Um, so, so there's that. And I think, you know, everybody's there if they're being honest. And then the optimism part, like, what the hell else are you going to do? Like, what's the alternative, right? So, so really, I think all a doomer optimist is, is someone who is understanding any portion of the reality of where we sit as a, as a society um, and, and continues to be. Right. And, and, and wakes up and has another day because I, I, I don't understand nihilism. You know, I don't understand, a, you know, a sort of fatalism. Um, yeah. If only if only because it, what a horrible existence. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't I mean, what's what motivates you to move forward or toward right. anything, you know, right. yeah, that, that to me is like, yeah. And it's and I think a lot of people are stuck in that. And that, yeah, I, I, the real goal for me here and this is to is to give people options to give them the idea that there are options out there that you don't have to be like so paralyzed by fear or anger that there are other things so so on that note okay um one of the guys the people in the world who i feel like og doomer optimist because he's so specific on um on potential things to engage in is mark shepherd um, he's written these, this book called Restoration Agriculture. He like takes permaculture principles, but he kind of critiques the permaculture movement as like herb spirals. And he's like, okay, let's do, let's take permaculture principles and then bring them to like actual agricultural production. Um, right. I'm wondering how you came across Mark Shepard. I know you've, you've met him before. He's from Wisconsin. Like, then Mark, I would just say to the people listening that Mark Shepard, then a lot of people are very inspired by his vision for the future of agriculture. And he's got like a, a whole bunch of acolytes who are, who are doing things like basically um, 
reversing desertification and building soil and sequestering carbon while producing food, like all this amazing stuff in, in different places around the world. Um, so yeah, just tell me a little bit, like who is Mark Shepard and why should we care who he is? Sure. I mean, I think you, you, you gave a great introduction um, to him and I, and I think, um, you know, your, your positioning of him vis-a-vis -vis permaculture, I think is, is right on. And he does a great job, if anyone's curious and like diving a little bit deeper on that topic, there is um, Dakota Cohen is another ag scale permaculturalist who has um, very, very good content, YouTube and, and a podcast. And well, I think it was one of his podcast episodes where he interviewed Mark and they, they got to talking about that. And it's a, it's a great conversation. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I don't know Mark personally, right? I've been to his farm, taken a tour, I've been to a couple of events that he's presented at. That's that's the extent of it. Um, he's a person with strong strong opinions, um, who I think, from my perspective, has has earned them, right? Um, he's been he his his place is I, I want to say 100, maybe 120 acres, a couple hours from here, and it's I by my recollection maybe 30 years into to um, existence, and it's it's just a a sight to behold. I mean, it's it's really remarkable um, the integration of nuts and fruits, and uh, you know a little bit of of annual agriculture, and a lot of um, very very clearly permaculture inspired infrastructure and systems for um, animal agriculture, and then and then uh, you know yield taking from perennials. Um, so you know that's what he's done, um, and largely using, or at least you know, in a way that's um, compatible with permaculture principles. Um, you know, and I think the criticism of permaculture, more as a fashion, right, or as a lifestyle um, yeah. dimension, is that it is that it is of a scale when it is in a backyard. It is of a scale that um, is of little consequence. I'm attempting to paraphrase the conversation that he and Dakota Cohen had. And, and I think that's fair. And I think that's also not a knock on it, right? Or, or and certainly I don't intend it. And I don't think it's valid as a knock on its practitioners. Um, I mean, permaculture is a wonderful, um, you know, scaffolding. It's, it's a design principle at the end of the day. And it's great as a design principle. What are the, what are the things you should think about? It is by its nature, um, recontextualizable. So if your context is, um, you know, a, a tenth of an acre backyard plot, cool, it can fit there. Um, I think the observation from people like Mark and Dakota is uh, that that's great, but it just doesn't move any needles very much. Mm -hmm. um, and at their scales, you know, three digits of acres, um, it, it can. And it is somebody, there was a Twitter conversation last week that involved somebody saying, you know, like, now that I have grazing animals, I just don't, like if I drive around town, I don't look at the empty space the same way. I see it all as potential. And I think that's that's true and that's really exciting. And I'm so grateful to people like Mark and Dakota for you know defining how that vision can or showing rather how that vision can be applied to spaces like that. Um the the scale of transformation that I would argue we would we need for like the United States food system is is really daunting. It's an enormous thing. So having referenceable um, you know, pilot projects or blueprints that that um, demonstrate how things can be useful and productive and a lot more aligned with ecological systems at that kind of scale is is a critical thing. I, I hope for this century. I mean, it's it's that or it's it's going to be a lot worse. Yeah, my counter argument to the the scale is too small for regular permaculture is just like I don't know. I think about places I've been, like rural Italy 
and everyone has chickens and everyone has a garden and like that kind of culture is something that does move the scale like the the culture of small scale production like tiny scale production totally that culture totally. of production does move the scale um but then they're asking a question like a totally different question which is like what is like what should agricultural producers yes. be doing so yes. it's like both and to me for those things. I, I, I think that's absolutely right, which is why like I understand their criticism. I think it's valid in a sense, but um, I actually find, it, I, and I think I said this not too long ago in some of the thread, I, I credit you with the, you know, the distillation of, you know, getting someone to like do a thing, you know, specifically Just in this anything. context to produce a thing of food. I don't care what it is. And, mm -hmm. and, and I agree, I think that is, that's the key inflection point. And to take people over that line, um, whether it's in, you know, what I would call the homestead context where it's for yourself or the small farm context where it's for commercial sale, I don't think it really matters. Um, it, is, it is walking over that line from just taking and needing and depending to producing and creating. Right. Um, and so, that, yeah, that's and moving, the thing that matters. Yeah. And moving from consumption to production, like uh, to me, that's such a huge part of what one could move toward. It doesn't even need to be food. It could also be like Chelsea Norman, like I'm going to oh, stop yeah. buying yogurt. I'm just going to start making yogurt at home. And that's one less thing I'm dependent on. I can just get the milk and then right. I can make yogurt myself. Um, it could be like needlepoint. I, you know, I mean, it could be like mm -hmm. learning how to sew your own clothes. Like it, it could totally. be share whatever um which now makes me think of this portlandia sketch where fred armison is like this cool guy who makes furniture <laughs> and at the end of the sketch you see he like puts his foot on the stool and it like can barely hold him it's called he's, okay. making, he's making furniture now is like this cool thing because like they make fun of it they do such a really good job with that because i do think like what's also very funny about the production stuff the culture that's coming around it is like all of us a, a lot of us are so inept and mm -hmm. it's okay it's okay that we're inept like just get on the journey like it's go that's part of the, my critique of the cottage core thing too is like like when you we first got our chickens they we could, didn't get them into the coop right away so the whole day we just spent chasing them and like realizing that chickens are just faster than humans and it was so like embarrassing but like i don't know it's just i think it's important to acknowledge like how little we all know and if you take the step into yes. production that it's like it's okay if you feel silly or are doing it badly <laughs> it's also okay to make fun of yourself you know yeah. yeah i i mean i think the key thing that happens is you establish agency by trying right you don't have to do it by succeeding um one of the one of the things i've most enjoyed doing i i, I spent a number of years coaching a youth ro Lego robotics team. So, I mean, I got into this because because my kids were interested and, and it kind of fit with my professional background. And so, you know, I'd coach these little groups of like fourth through eighth graders and they would come in, you know, basically knowing nothing and they would build these little Lego based robots and they would go up and do things. And, you know, it was really common. I would have a conversation like with their parents where they were all excited because the kids were learning STEM skills. And it's like, I don't, you know, like none of these kids are like, I know your kids. I mean, obviously you know them too, but like, gonna go be and i hope they're not engineers they're like really creative and smart but what i want them to know like the the critical lesson to me is that um you have control over the technology right that's it like that's the only point and and uh, by analogy i think the same is true of your foods and your fibers and like 
all of the stuff that you that you need to live. You don't have to produce it. You have to see yourself as somebody who who could conceivably do those things. Um, right. Even if you couldn't practically speaking do them, like just understanding that they're not mana from the global you know corporate capitalist heaven, that they are in fact just things that you know our grandparents made. Um, right. That's right. that's a huge change of, yeah, of mindset. I think, yeah, and just like yeah, empowering people, giving them the sense of agency, like and yeah, and and not to discount the struggles and the structures that make it hard for people to do X, Y, or Z, but just you know i guess give, giving people a template for for what's possible i think like that's to me the goal um okay so quickly back to mark shepherd one of the things he talks about and another guy who i really like on who i've found a couple of his youtube videos who's also from wisconsin peter allen of mastodon mm -hmm. valley farms talks about is the oak savanna ecosystem and i think right. what's really cool about this at least from the the um what I get from it, and I'm not an ecologist, but this is like, this is my mental model of this uh, oak savanna ecosystem. Basically like humans can be a keystone species in an ecosystem. For example, in a lot of the Great Plains in the United States, lots of Native American tribes were doing planned burns to keep the a savanna um, ecosystem going so that the bison population would stay large enough that they could hunt them. And then on the edges of these savanna ecosystems, there were like these forest gardens where they purposefully planted trees that were fruit and nut trees like nearby their settlements. So it was almost like a, a garden, a wild garden. And so the idea here being like humans can be a keystone species working together with other creatures, building an ecosystem that functions with them in it and you and we could mimic that with right. like with plants with permaculture with um with trees and animals and we can mimic basically like a domesticated sort of wild forest garden but just yes. now a dom domesticated version of it i think that's super cool I, I don't we you and i have never talked about this is that the reason you're shooting for oak savannah too? Well, it, it, it is. And thank you for bringing us back to the question. We kind of rambled away. Um, yeah, so I encountered, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we wanted to move to the country and we were going to sort out the details afterwards. So, so when we got here, the, the here that we um, acquired that our, that our house is on um, is, like I said, about 13 acres, uh, about 11 of it is um, a former oak savanna. And, I, and we know this because we've managed to dig up aerial photos from, I think, probably the first aerial photography past, like in the 30s. And you can see, I can look at those. I'm, I'm a map-oriented spatial thinker. Um, so I, I know the map of our, of our land very well from a lot of different perspectives. And I can see the same trees, right? Like they're, they were big in the 30s and they're, they're big now. Um, the difference though, it's remarkable. In the 30s, you know, there were, you know, I don't know, 80 trees that you would see from the aerial, you know, and today uh, or 10 years ago, even more so, it's just a sea of green, like it's all tree canopy. And the yeah. understory was all, you know, when we got here, basically all invasives and brambles of different kinds. Um, right. A lot of the sort of mid story was, um, you know, not the like nice desirable hardwoods, but various sort of opportunistic junk. Um, and, you know, it was almost impassable. Um, so this is the context we were in when we got here. Um, we had had chickens were our gateway drug. Um, we had had four chickens in the city and that certainly was a huge part of us 
um, deciding that we wanted to do this. We like to joke that it was, you know, if Madison had allowed us to have more than four chickens, maybe we would, maybe this would have all gone very differently, but we got to four and we're like, no, chickens are way too cool. We can't just have four. Um, so we got here and we knew like, okay, we can have a lot more chickens. You know, the garden can be a, a whole lot bigger. We have a very big garden. Um, you know, we, we, we have some fruit trees and so forth. You know, but then the question was, well, what do we what do we do with the rest? And I honestly don't remember how I came across Mark Shepard, but it was I remember sitting on the hammock reading Restoration Agriculture and, and realizing like, oh, the the kind of system that he's talking about, um, we're like sitting on the overgrown, weirdly um, decayed bones of exactly that. Um, and so in the end, this is the, the, the farm is named Hidden Savannah Farm because what our, we see our objective is really, um, you know, you know, kind of like a sculptor with the block of granite, you know, we're removing the other stuff to let that other, you know, that, that thing that is inside come through. Um, and that is a heck of a lot of work, but. <laughs> and, and like, and I think this is, this is different from a lot of people who think about nature as this pristine thing that humans should be out of. And if we just all removed all humans, then it would go back to this like perfect pristine state. Um, sure. But if you look to see like your property, it is just like a bunch of bramble and like small bushes underneath if there's no, like a lot of the animals that um, were once in the ecosystem that you, in which you live like um, have become extinct. And, and so now the ecosystem is different without them or whatever. And I think right. um, it's just like, a, it, there's a couple of different worldviews for like how to approach, how to approach what is natural. Can humans be involved in it at all? that's a great topic and i mean yeah you know um in it's oftentimes comes up in the in the veganism versus animal ag discussions yeah. on twitter but the the idea that we can high-tech produce all of our food and then rewild everything else um you know just sort of wall it off and let it be and that that would be best for the planet um i mean i think there is a coherent argument there i don't i don't subscribe to it personally um but I, but i think there's a there's a valid argument and i certainly think that the the people generally speaking who make it are well-intentioned yeah. um however where where i sort of philosophically can't align there is is that 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 view requires first seeing humans as not part of the ecosystem which just doesn't make any sense you, you put it well a lot of the species are gone like things change we are certainly a part of that change but i think that the intellectually responsible thing to do with the knowledge that we're part of that change is not just to flagellate ourselves for having broken everything um but to own the fact that we are in fact a participant in this system and not you know its engineer and um things like the vision that that, that mark and, and peter allen and and others articulate i think are a great example of how we can do that um yeah and and that is you know that is they are the the giants at whose angles we bite here right like that's you know so our objective is to to kind of move in that direction at our very small scale um yeah yeah, yeah. But, and i think like I, I mean i saw something recently um about these forest fires that constantly are happening in the west and somebody was showing how they mechanically cleared all this underbrush and then when the fire reached this underbrush cleared area it stopped spreading um and i was like well what <laughs> There are goats, like goats do that. Um, you don't need to have a mechanical, like fossil fuel run thing. And then I, right. I posted that, like maybe you could just toss some livestock in there and then, you know, I don't know, win-win, then you also get some like food out of it. <laughs> um, and then a bunch of people were posting like examples of how how that like principle works. So I, I just, I'm, I, I just think like, I don't know, a lot of times you just think 
livestock, the way that we approach it is based on global aggregate data of industrial farming. And mm -hmm. we're not thinking holistically about it, but I've talked about that so many times, I don't need to keep going about that, but okay. But yeah. um, related question to this, um, how do you approach this farming, fa the farming stuff in general? We've talked a lot about this, like you didn't go in with a plan, um, which, so, okay, the rationalists might critique that, but the, the, the counter argument and one I know Joe Norman makes and I know um, Nassim Taleb makes is, um how to approach things you know in in iterations complex systems and your farm is a complex system for for those listening i've visited josh's farm it's like the amount of information he has to hold in his head like because the animals are all moving with electric fencing through the landscape over time and then the landscape itself is changing as a result of the animals moving through it and then like so like you know clearing the brush for example um, and then Josh has to like think, is it time to move them? What was this like this time last year or two years ago or, or five years ago has to like hold that all in his head to like make decisions about the next step. So um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could talk through like what that approach is like. Sure, it's funny. I, I had a recent reminder of, of the complexity of the system. We, we left, um, we left uh, for two days recently. Um, our, our eldest is starting to look at colleges, and so we needed to go visit some. And it was the first time we'd left at all, um, any of us, you know, since 2019. And so, um, and with someone watching the farm, but I had to write out, you know, like obviously I simplify everything. We were only gone for two days, so I had, you know, nobody, no animal groups moved while we were gone. It was just like feed things, you know, close them at night, let them out in the morning, here's how to check water. But it was uh, four or five pages of like single spaced. And, you know, it was my dad who was watching it. So I had a, you know, very high level of trust in, in both his, his capabilities and, and his diligence. Um, but still, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of stuff. Um, I think I, I love the way that, that Joe articulates the realities of complexity. Um, they've really, it's, it's helped me to see more clearly some stuff that I think in my professional life, I'd come to 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 learn and to sort of intuit, uh, you know, in terms of, of an approach, um, you know, and obviously the, the sort of intellectual framework is a nice shortcut for that. You know, it makes it easier to, to cross apply to other domains. Um, I'm not at all, you know, big plans thinking now switching to sort of the way that I would do this in my in my day to day life. Um, you know, in, in, in software, big plans fail, like just period, they, they, they do. And it's not because they're, they're you know, the, the teams implementing them are bad. It's not because the plan was bad. It's because the idea of planning, uh, you know, whatever, 50 person months of work is um, predicated on uh, arrogance and, and uh, you know, um, it, it's not it's not realistic to think that one can can put that do that amount of uncertainty that number of variables into a plan and have a coherent thing come up. Um, you know, in the software world, we see that turn into an endless uh, search for agility. Uh, you know, a fashion towards the artifacts of agility and the trappings of it. Sometimes that's real. Oftentimes that's not. Um, which is why it continues to largely uh, disappoint. Um, but here, you know, it works the same way. I think, you know, to me, you you look as short as you can, or, or rather, there's a relationship between depth of view. You know, how far forward are you looking, and degree of expected specificity slash confidence you put in the answers. So, right, I might have a five-year plan, but I'm going to have a very low degree of specificity on my five-year plan, and an even lower degree of 
confidence that my plan will play out like that. Um, right. This is the fun. It's it's fun to tease Joe about visions. Um, uh, I don't know. We shouldn't get into that. But but the but point is, you can. I think you can have a vision if it's fuzzy. So, mm. Sorry. I said, get into it. Get into it. Why? Well, I, I mean, I, I think uh, it, it seems it seems wrong to put words in Joe's mouth here. But I think the key is that a vision can be um, can be ambiguous. It can be vague. It can be fuzzy, and it can still provide provide value. So when right. I look at a longer term plan, that's how I look. Right. So in 10 years, I know that there's, you know, four or five acres that is currently still invasives and bramble that I want to be um, grazable, that I want to have um, perennial fruit and nut production to a greater degree in that I want to figure out water distribution to. Hmm. That's maybe all that I could say about still a question mark. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How am I going to get there? I don't know, because that's actually not what I'm doing today. You know, like what I was doing today was you know, the sheep decided that they were done with the very large area I gave them to graze before I left town. So this morning I, I got a new one ready um, so that tomorrow probably I can move them into it. And and of course that's all, you know, a sliding scale, right? There's a middle term that's in between there. And as you go through those shorter term cycles, you're inevitably, you know, a couple of things are happening. You're learning um, primarily about like mechanics and their results. Um, your, and then the environment's changing, right? As you said, um, what I did last year may not work this year because the starting conditions are different. It's incredibly yeah. difficult to model those things. And in a sense, when I think back on my life, I've, you know, I've, I'm kind of inclined to, to a, an unhealthy work-life balance, or at least I was when I was younger. Um, and, and so like maybe a decade into my career, I was just like only working. And I found myself, I looked back at one point and I realized like, oh, I'm picking hobbies in an attempt to find something that I can't mechanically reduce to something that could theoretically be solved with software. Like I want <laughs> to have a thing that must be analog. And, yeah. um, you know, so like that got me into cooking, that got me into bonsai, that got me into, you know, other things that were just difficult to quantify in a satisfying way. Um, and, and I think to a large extent, that's what, that's what this is, right? Like, um, sure, I use software to help the administrative and record keeping part of the day to day, but it's far there's far too many moving pieces to encapsulate it in that, right? To let it reduce to that. Um, so that is like, I think that I've is, wandered pretty far from the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was like, that is a very ha hashtag resist is like it, 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 literally pursuing things that cannot be quantified, pursuing things yeah. that can't be like controlled and taken up by, by um, pots, you know, because you yeah. just, just can't it literally can't be that's why i'm always railing against um like the can it feed the world question it's like you cannot aggregate this data you can barely collect it you can barely right. collect right. data on peasant agriculture barely right. like oh it's almost illegible um right. what production is like because it's constantly shifting through the seasons and through the years and whatever i would also just add that i i think that this Pursuing um, something that cannot be quantified and modeled um, also forces a sort of Zen or Taoist, like live with the question, let the answer emerge kind of um, perspective. And I guess like uh, on that note, um, what is the goal of all of this for you? Um, I remember you telling me something about connection but I think like, I mean, honestly, that to me, one of that, one of the goals for me is, um, yeah, I think pursuing something that forces me to slow down, forces me to, per, I don't know, to, to answer questions in an analog way, answer questions 
by communing with nature and understanding, you know, like be, being told signals that are, um, you know, receiving signals that are not really quantifiable yeah. um, or legible or can't be represented in data makes you, makes you have this sort of Zen kind of knowledge. Yeah, I, 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 I hear that. Um, I, I think, I don't think about the goal so much as like a thing that sits out there in the future. Um, I mean, I don't know, when we were looking at properties, we, we got to this one, I think it was probably this one and our realtor looked at us and it's like, yes, there's, there's like a, a lot, a lot that's not right with this place. Like there was, it was in a pretty serious state of neglect. And I, I remember I, I was probably very strange seeming to the realtor. So I looked at him and was like, that's cool. I really don't like to be bored. And, and like that, that, that was, that's kind of a lot of it. Like, I really don't like to be bored. So what, what is the, the goal? The, I, I don't, I mean, sure. The goal is that, you know, we continue, you know, to, to re-uncover the, the Savannah, to turn it into, um, you know, a more functioning and more independent, you know, perennial food system. I mean, at some level, that's the goal, but when you think about goals, you oftentimes think about them as being achievable. I don't like that. That's never done. Um, right. And right. that's, that's okay. I mean, like, I think for me, the goal is really, it's more about how we spend our days and how we spend our lives and what, what it is that, that constitutes a, a day, a month, a year. Um, I really, um, I'm, I'm a homebody and I really enjoy um, that there is, that I am an active part of this complex system and that it, um, you know, it's, it's weird. It's not like I, I want it to depend on me, but I appreciate being, um, a component of it and being able to, to do that and kind of steward it and nudge it. Um, and, and it nudges me too, right? We, we definitely have a dynamic relationship um, and, and try to get things that are valuable out of it. Um, yeah. So for us, that is some of our food. And then, you know, that is also our, you know, quantitatively absolutely irrelevant interaction um, in the marketplace, you know, um, <laughs> And then when we do our taxes, you know, sure, the farm is a business. It it um it it produces a non-negligible amount of revenue. But you know, if you look at the definition of the hobby farm, it's like one that somebody is not relying on for their existence. We're certainly a hobby farm, right? Um, and uh, I, but the the to me the significance of that is that uh, you know, giving someone else some of their food, even if it's a couple of chickens a year or their Thanksgiving turkey, is profound. Um, it, it is, uh, I, I think that fact that we've become so distanced from both our food and the way that it's produced is weird. Um, I don't even want to be more judgmental about it. It just doesn't feel quite right. Um, right. And there are a lot of reasons why that has to be, um, you know, that that's not by any stretch meant to shame or blame those that um, are not able to do that. Our food's expensive. Um, you know, I think it's a problem that that we expect and and we need food to be cheap. Um, but I think that the root of that problem sits not in the production of expensive food. It sits in a lot of other much broader topics. Um, so what is the goal? I mean, I don't know. I think my, my goal is to um, continue to do this and then die. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully yeah. in a long time, but um, it doesn't, I don't, I don't think it has more than that. To it. Yeah, you know what? And what you were talking about just now reminded me of, um, when you were saying being, being needed by the, the land and the animals, and then, you know, you, you being sort of transformed by their presence and your life and vice versa. And it reminds me of parenting, um, where you're responsible for some, 
one or thing. And I think in general, we want to just be like ultimate convenience. Like I can, I can leave at any point. I have freedom then to like go about whatever I want to do, but like responsibility for a thing and a place and a person, um, it's just, it, it's a different kind of goal um, than just ultimate freedom of movement and, and, and choice at all time, um, but super deep, um, deeply meaningful, you know, like just yeah. being part of anything. And then you, like everyone, you know, not to be cliche, then you're, you, you get changed by raising your kids and, and become sure. more mature. And it's just like this, I don't know, um, uh, sort of beautiful relationship um so okay so um what is your sense of the nascent homestead farmstead self-sufficiency movement do you think there is a movement do you think there's like do you think i'm pretending there's a movement because i like it um do you have critiques of this kind of thing like this is kind of a, a socio-political question i don't know like I really don't, I, I, I don't have any numbers. I have no real sense of like what's going on. I just have a sense that there's sort of mass panic and people are trying to think, what can I do, you know? It's interesting. I mean, I have a couple of different reactions to that, like isolated. I don't know if there's a movement or not. I don't have a basis to know that, you know? I know what comes into my day-to-day -day sphere, um, but obviously where I focus my attention is, is as much a determinant of what's going to differently come into my day to day as some change in the external material reality, right? So um, I know that I have encountered at different times um, others who either think or act similarly in significant ways. And those moments are really wonderful, you know, whether that's um, maybe the first at scale was probably the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, which is a fantastic um, group based also here in Wisconsin, hosts a, a, a fair every year that is just like one of the most, I mean, they haven't had it for the last two years, sadly, but I'm um, really one of the most inspiring and awesome things. It's it's nothing fancy, but I'm just getting, uh, you know, seeing a bunch of other people who perceive um, more or less the same reality that you perceive is is really um, inspiring and, and relieving in a sense. Um, you know, certainly the corner of Twitter that we both reside in is is similar. I mean, I have um, I've been on Twitter from the very start and, and have never, you know, I think until I sort of stumbled into what you might call homesteader Twitter um, was a very, you know, occasional and on, um, you know, not, not a committed Twitter user, let's say. Um, and I didn't kind of get, I didn't take a lot from it, right? I followed it primarily for news and outrage consumption. And, you know, those things are just not satisfying really in the long run. Um, what, what's been great, you know, since I've sort of stumbled into Homestead Twitter is is just the community and, and the fact that there are others. So I don't have any idea if there's right. movement. Um, and I sort of don't care. Um, you know, like it is meaningful to me that there are that there are others um, who do similar things and think similar things and see similar things. It's even more meaningful to me that while and you guys talked about this a little bit in the first episode with the, you know again in the big tent content that there's a lot of disagreement among those people too, and and that for me especially in the last couple of months has really clarified just how much I think the conventional framing of our current political situation is beyond useless. Like um, it, it just doesn't represent anything of, of significance anymore. Um, 
And in a sense, that's really liberating, because I think if you look at the political discourse, it's almost impossible to come to a conclusion other than it's intractably um, doomed, right? That it is it is not discourse anymore. It is warfare. Um, yeah. It is worse. It's it's warfare based on on misunderstanding and misinformation, oftentimes weaponized misunderstanding and misinformation. Um, it's really not good. And I and I and I sincerely think there is no path out. Um, to sort of reconciliation and a, a reclamation of, of civil discourse um, through that lens. But then right. I think when I look at, at the reality of human beings interacting, um, that is gone, right? That just doesn't exist. And um, I, I, I think I mentioned to you, it, you know, some time ago, one of my favorite things after moving to the country is, you know, we, we, you know, we were on quite a budget by the time we got here, we needed a whole bunch of stuff like that. We didn't even know the stuff we needed when we first arrived. And, you know, we started to kind of figure out what we needed and we got into the habit of going to Craigslist for most of it. because we could get it for, you know, dimes on the dollar. And that's, that was about our budget. And I just kind of a few Craigslist interactions in, I realized like, you know, absolutely everybody I've talked to that I've, you know, whatever, bought an old hay wagon from or picked up a couple of chickens from or like whatever the like kind of small transaction might have been, has been a really nice person. We've had something in common. We have the immediate thing in common, right? The transaction. And then, you know, there's more and there's a human connection that is of, of significance. And, you know, when you then like add to that the layer that is the conventional political discourse, probably in almost every case, I'm significantly at odds with these people. You know, it's not part of our interaction because it it actually is really not real for most intents and purposes. Um, right. And I love that. Like I, I that is that is maybe for me that's the that's what starts the optimism is this idea that um, the thing at the human level that makes this all seem so so doomed um, is is largely a construction. I mean, I I, I really believe that. Yeah. Um, so Total psyop. I mean, at least for me, it's just like yeah. trying to tell us that we hate each other when right. we don't really. <laughs> I mean, right. like when you get together with other people who are different from you and you're you're collaborating on something that's not explicitly political, but something else. It could be commerce. It could be some some community yep. thing, whatever it is. Um, it could be building something. I, I always think of um, Mash Tun Timmy and his friends making beer together. Like just, you know, this stuff where you're like in the act of creation together, you're not getting together to argue about politics. Like rarely, what, what, what I mean, what, why are we even do? what's the point of that? I don't know. I, I think a lot of times like um, people are thinking like, I can't ever agree with them. Like just don't bring up certain topics yeah. and then focus on these, <laughs> these other things and create together. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I, I just won't argue with people on Twitter. Like I just don't, you know, I, 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 I've thought, you know, people run those little games where they're like, you know, re reply to this and I'll tell you, you know, whatever, what, you know, what tweet yeah. best represents you or like, you know, yeah. those silly things. And the one that I've wanted to do is like reply to this and I will think the thing I horribly disagree with you about, but I'm never going to tell you, <laughs> you know, um, cause I could do it for everybody. Right. Yeah. But, but what's the point? Um, right. it's much more fun to talk about the things that we, um, you know, do have in common or do agree about or almost agree about. Um, and, and you can, there's no reason to, like you don't run out of that stuff, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. And and by um, popular request, um, Doomsday Parent asked us to talk about Twitter. Um, how do you use Twitter and why? Um, and what are your, your more delightful, what are the more delightful sides of Twitter for you? 
Um, I use Twitter. I would say I still use Twitter very inconsistently. Um, it is sometimes it's more. How do I use Twitter? I mean, sometimes I use it to fill time. I've really, I really try to limit that, honestly, because I find that that sort of slides into the outrage machine um, right, usage right. pattern really easily. I'm specifically referring to the fact that you post like ducks and not um, yeah. outrage machine. Uh, yeah, well, so, um, you know, my, my deep long story background, um, in high school, I was a like a nationally competitive policy debater. It was um, very good, and um, is all I did. Uh, I just spent time in the library, and then and then spent time debating. Um, like, didn't do school really. I mean, I did enough, but like that was that was my life. And I sort of burned out in, in my senior year and didn't didn't pursue that in college. But it and I've realized like as adulthood has grown on that it really sort of set up some of how my head works um, <laughs> in in this because like competitive policy debate is a sport. It's not, it's not like talking about issues. It's not like having a debate in the way that outsiders would. It's just a sport. So in the same way that going for a run with your friends is really different than going to a track and field event, like there's no comparison. But I, I spent a lot of time sort of training for that heavily adversarial mode of truth seeking. And in the, the worldview of policy debate, that is a noble effort. It is truth seeking, you know, kind of like a lawyer would argue, you know, I'm defending the obviously guilty person, but I'm doing it because the process of that defense, the, the dialectic that's created is how we get to the best possible result. Very similar kind of idea. Um, and it, you know, it took me a really long time to realize just how much most people have no comprehension of that as what's going on in um, a superficially combative discourse. Um, and you know that's that's um that's unfortunate, right? Um, I say that primarily because um, if, if you found people that I've worked with in the first maybe three decades of my life, which at this point is a while ago, um, you know, I, I I was I was probably more of a negative influence than I would have wanted to be, um, and, and somewhat unknowingly. And I really credit my eldest kid for for realizing this. They started um down a similar path, and a couple of years in, they were like, "No, this is not a good thing," and they had this really and brilliant and brave and, and well-articulated insight, oh. you know, for them, it was, this is why I'm quitting debate. Um, and, and I think they're, they're really onto something. And I have kind of brought that into the way that I've approached social media. Um, it's obviously a bit of an analogy, but like, there's just, it, it comes back to, to finding more value in, 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 in talking about the things in common, right. Than, than in not, I, I just don't, um, there are very few contexts in which explaining to someone why they're wrong is a useful thing hmm. to anyone. Um, yeah. yeah, and I so think that I my, in general, a lot of the fights on Twitter um, are this middle ground, like, okay, there's either talking about things we all agree on, or we're doing like a, I, yeah, I, I think this, and somebody's doing yes, and I think this, and I would add this, and it's just all positive interactions. And there is what you're describing where debate can be generative, but it has to be in good faith and not like half-assed and also not um, just, just mean-spirited, which like right. just doesn't seem to exist. There's this middle right. ground where it's just like mean-spirited and like, I don't know, half-assed. It's not that thoughtful. People are just no. going with low blows. And like that to me is just the, it's the biggest waste of time. Totally. 
And I just like feel yeah. so gross if I ever get into those situations. It's, it's worse than a waste of time, right? Because it, because it produces a lot of negativity. And I think that's real. Um, you know, I, I, I credit a, a dear lifelong friend who has known me forever and knows you know, my, my, my actually deep inner nature, um, in the bad way. Um, and, and at one point, like, you know, sort of over years tried to get me to get this and eventually succeeded, um, you know, specifically around the, the sort of yes and alternative to a, a disagreement. And I was thinking about it recently. And the analogy that really resonated for me was I I'm fascinated by the idea of picturing, um, civilizations meeting for the first time. Right. So we have this in sci-fi, you know, movies like Contact, but I think about it more easily in historical context, right? Some, you know, some explorer from one culture encounters the other. It, it, what's fascinating to me is our ability cognitively to um, to learn a language from scratch, right? You, so, so if you and I are from completely different cultures, completely different languages, we encounter each other one day, you know, four weeks later, we're able to communicate in some manner, like how? That's magic. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. But what I was thinking was, there's no way that that works when either party's approach to it is to correct the other one and explain to them why they're using the word for banana wrong, right? Like that wouldn't possibly work. The only yeah. way to make that work is, oh, that's how you see it. Okay, well, this is how I you know, do it. And then that continues until there's enough of a shared uh, you know, reference space that, that there can be actual communication. Um, and I think, I think it's all you know, sort of fractally that at different layers. Yeah, um, yep. I agree. And I guess like, to me, it's a similar thing um, with how I like to use Twitter and also how I approach um, being an outsider toward locals in Uruguay is just a, um, how can I give you the, the, the um, greatest benefit of the doubt to try to understand where you're coming from, to try to explain in the best way that I can where I'm coming from, um, so that we might learn from each other's perspectives in a way that's yeah. like, you know, illuminating, or, you know, understanding some side of the elephant or whatever. Um, yeah. Use Cognizors. Um, I don't want to refer back to, to Jason's um, tweet, but uh, people can go find it. Um, so um, on that topic, both with Twitter and with local people, what you, uh, you might call local people, I'm thinking of this Craigslist, these Craigslist interactions you've had, but Sure. Tell me a little bit more about um, that, because I think part of the thing that people are really afraid of, or not afraid of, but critique, like home study, self-production stuff, because they're like, this is just neoliberal, this is just individualist. And in my dissertation research, I found a bunch of people um, making these kinds of relationships out of necessity. Like a lot of people who wanted to get into chickens and then find a mentor through Craigslist or whatever, find a mentor by buying from them. And then all of a sudden now they're their chicken mentor. Um, sure. I'd love to hear like an example or two of interactions with people you wouldn't have otherwise met that have been positive and how you build community in a kind of mundane way. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. And that's exactly, um, animal animals have been the, the biggest way, right? So the, um, you know, the, place that we went to get more chickens. I mean, this was literally like the fourth day after we moved out here because we wanted more than four. So we, you know, found a farm on Craigslist and, and you know, she was selling chickens. We went to get more chickens. And, um, you know, we ended up like, we went to get four chickens. We came home with eight chickens. You know, we spent an hour and a half talking about chicken breeds. Um, 
you know, and she absolutely became a mentor. We went back uh, for many, you know, many times over the years. Uh, we bought, um, you know, we bought uh, half a pork from her. We bought other chickens from her. We, you know, looked at sheep um, with her when we were going to get into sheep. Absolutely leaned on her. Um, you know, the place we ended up buying sheep from is still the first call we make when we have a sheep question. You know, we don't call our vet. Our vet's fine, but you know, this person knows. You know, not just the breed, um, but actually the the line of genetics that you know our sheep are from, um, and everything sort of works that way. I think because people who are doing this kind of thing want to be um, like it's. I'm sorry, I'm not being very articulate about it. I mean, there is a there is a a greater than the transactional relationship that I think can be anchored by the transactional relationship. Um, you know, despite what an economics professor might say, we aren't fundamentally economic creatures. Um, you know, that that's just a thing that happens as a way to meet certain needs. But I think that it provides an excuse to make a broader connection. Um, and then that connection becomes the actual thing. It may involve follow on economic, uh, you know, interactions, but that's not the point. Um, yeah. yeah. So and do you see, do you see um, that kind of model as, as I do, I don't know if you agree with me, as like a potential political project, a, a potential path towards something political, like, and when I say political, I mean, you know, building relationships right. that then become the basis for community um, when they weren't explicitly trying to make community. I think like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the utopian leaning people think you make community by having like a meeting about degrowth or something that, you know yeah. what I mean? They don't, they think like you have a make community by having like a meeting about community, but it's like too, it's too self-conscious then, you know what I mean? Or like people are like, let's mm -hmm. have a potluck. And you're like trying to like force, you've told me this before. You don't like to be at a party where it's just like, you're not really <laughs> sure what we're talking about, or you have to like come up with an idea. But then if you're like with somebody and working on a project, you're like, oh, Oh yeah, like this is so fun. We have something to talk yeah. about. It's the project, it's the thing, you know, that we have to like right. solve together. It's so much more interesting too. Totally, totally. Like I identify as like shy and uninterested in talking to people, but I'm very happy to talk with people, right? I, I love, I love interacting with people. I'm just not really like I'm easily bored and and don't like not knowing why we're here. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I love I love your vision of how that can work. If I had not even a criticism of it, but the place where I think maybe we would see it differently. And I, I think a lot of this is coming from the burbs and still being, a, I mean, I drive through the burbs to get back to my house. I feel like it's a little, I wish I believed that it was as close as hearing you describe your vision makes it sound. I uh, yeah, feel like I, no, we have I, a lot more pain to get through. Yeah, no, we have so much more pain. This is just me um, trying to, to, to highlight the bright side, just because the doomerous side, like gets so much airtime. Yes. I have to be like, no, there is, there's still hope out there. But like my, my true self knows what's like the, the well, pain that comes in between point A and point B, like even my own journey to Uruguay, like, oh my gosh, it's just getting set up. When we first moved into our home, we had no running water or electricity for like three weeks with two little kids. It's like, that wasn't, fun you know that was right. that was hard it was like difficult um but then I got through it and now I feel like stronger from it but I, I I'm just thinking about that you know that journey for yeah. people um well, but just so, trying to highlight like there's an end point to to, to shoot for you there know there's an end point and then there is there is a humanity that persists along the way it's funny we were just 
um, we were just, I was just thinking about your sort of theory of how this could go. And we were talking about it on this, this recent college visit tour um, where my kid was, um, you know, they're, they're highly aware of the world and they, they're definitely in the doomer uh, phase of things. Um, and we were driving through a neighborhood that um, maybe was not the one that the, the global capitalist machine smiles on most while we're having this conversation. And, and, and they were, um, you know, sort of just expressing their, their lack of hope that um, at a systemic level, things would, would work out in any manner. And this neighborhood we were driving through it's economically, you know, not not the best, um, struggling you know, certainly, but vibrant. You could tell, right? There was activity. There were, um, you know, there were maybe shitty storefronts, but they were active. Um, they were current. You know, there was um, it was alive. And thinking, you know, I think a, a lot of you, you've really helped me understand how to see some of these issues. I think the interesting thing is, as the big systems fail, I mean, there are a couple of interesting things they're not acknowledging their failure. I don't know if they know they're failing or not, but it's definitely not part of the message they project. So here they are, they control um, uh, you know, huge chunks of our, of our world. They're clearly failing. Um, I think because of their unwillingness to acknowledge their failure, they're, they're not going to stop failing, right? Like you can't fix a problem whose existence you deny. Um, <laughs> and we all depend on them. Right, so they're gonna fail. But, but I think the, the thing that when you reason about it only at the global level, it's easy to then think, oh, so doom and apocalypse. But if you zoom in, that's not even possible because every person that's involved in that situation is gonna wake up every day. And every day, if the system is a little bit more failing, they're still gonna go do their damnedest to have a day. Yeah, And they're right. gonna and be creative and they're gonna they have, you know, bring human ingenuity to, to the right. situation. And they have a will to live and to survive. Yeah. Like a bunch yes. of people, everybody has a will to survive. So people figure things out. And I just think about like Detroit and how there's just, it's just hollowed out. And then all of a sudden there's these like agricultural neighborhoods and there's just these people taking over right. abandoned lots and being like, this is, this is, this is food growing area now. Um, I'm not going to starve. So I'm going to do yes. this and, it's, and, and we're going to make it happen. Um, yes. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot about the bones um, of a place like a, like a downtrodden urban community. Um, the thing I always think about is there's this, uh, in my circle of scholars, um, they're talking about self-sufficiency movements. And this one book, I was so angry reading about um, how they said something along the lines of like, you know, the urban poor are very good at exchange and self-sufficiency and like barter systems. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about new movements. And I was just like, why aren't you talking about them? Like it's well <laughs> right. that the urban poor have these systems of, of um, you know, mutual aid, exchange, barter, um, and ways to get by, to cope. I'm like, this is, this is it. This is worth looking into. And, and it's like, it's only interesting or valid if like yuppies to put in Neil Clark's terms, yuppies are doing it, you know? Um, right. And yeah, I totally hate that. I, I think there's so much out there, rural and urban, and, and just people with less resources in Uruguay, people are used to crisis. So they're used to having to work together and share things and they're used right. to not throwing things out and reusing it and all of that. Um, 
so yeah okay so um did you have a follow-up to that uh, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you. You know, Detroit, I think, is a is a fantastic example, right? It, it seems to be that undistributed or that differently distributed part of our future. The thing, I guess, just on that topic, the to bring us back to the doomer, the the thing that really troubles me, in particular, looking at the U.S. and um, sort of the more traditionally privileged communities in the U.S. is I, I'm concerned about the path from here to there. Like I have yeah. no problem imagining the post collapse, you know, resurgence of human ingenuity and, and um, natural community. Um, what I'm afraid of is when we're, you know, however many years in to the point where the inevitability of collapse is no longer ignorable by those who are accustomed to privilege by what they will um, use their power to sacrifice in order to try to cling on. And I think we see the beginning of that um, you know, and that that that's troubling because I don't I don't have a good answer to that. Um, no, you know, no, I um, I mean I just think I I basically just like yeah think that that to me is the scariest part. It's, it's a place where you have the least agency. Like when when people in power want to crush you to keep whatever power they have, historically not a great place to be. Right, <laughs> um, right. uh, under that, but so so on that note, um, do you have a spicy take? that you don't normally share on Twitter that you want to share today. Um, this is my not today fed question. Spicy take. I don't, I don't really have any spicy takes. I think, um, I think most rationality is um, ex post facto rationalization, in fact, and that we um, significantly undersell the inexplicable in our motives and even our thinking. And then we use our fancy words and our reason to make them seem true. So you believe in portents? You believe in ghosts? I um, I don't know that I necessarily believe in, believe in ghosts. In, I believe there's believe a lot magic? that's- I believe there's a lot that's real that we can't explain adequately. And I at agree. some point, I think that the, the functional difference between that and portents or magic is negligible, right? right? I mean, it's it's quibbling at some point, right? Like if, um, you know, I absolutely believe in science. I think that what science is missing is an appreciation of the boundaries of its, of its lane, you know, like stay in your lane, science. You, <laughs> you are able to answer a certain set of questions. Theoretically, you're able to answer all the questions, but in practice, you're nowhere near that point. Um, right. And, and, you know, we don't like that, I think, because, and this is a, a spicy take I have shared on Twitter, so it doesn't really fit the answer. You know, I, I think that we are, we have become far too dependent on being able to, to mechanically reduce our view of any interaction and to, to, to express it in a mechanical fashion. Um, I think because that allows for control, right? If, right. if we can do that, if, you know, the, the machine has an engineer, you know, the system does not. Um, right. Yeah, and I think it reminds me of what somebody was saying to me once on Twitter that like if I ask my grandma to explain why she's doing something in the garden, I don't think she could answer the, the why question. Like they, she just does it that way. You know what I mean? And I think that there's something to that where you spend enough time in in an iterative relationship with nature. I mean, even I would even say this is true for parenting. It's like this intuitive thing. It's just kind of rolling out. You're figuring it out as you go along. You see what feels right and not. And if somebody like asked me to back explain why I said something to my kid, I would be like, I'd come up with something because I just have to sound like I, I, I know what I'm doing <laughs> or I have a good reason for it. But it's full. It's fully the, the re 
result of like an intuitive, you know, interaction? It is. I, I think it's, there's a tricky space in here though, which is, um, you know, how do we like epistemologically resolve that with out that turning into a blind um, tradition obedience? Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm like, I'm wired somewhat deeply in an anti-authoritarian sort of manner. And, and for me, um, you know, I love my grandma, but because she does it some way does not make that right. And her inability to explain it would, you know, set off some warning bells. <laughs> it doesn't mean I wouldn't listen, right? But it, it also, but it does mean I wouldn't take it. It's not right just because grandma does it that way. Yeah. Um, so this, um, I may be tipping my hand about some of the things I might disagree with certain um, subsets of Homestead Twitter on, but yeah. I think um, I think there is, I, I, I can wholeheartedly agree with plenty of critiques of modernity and also not sign up for, um, you know, return as a, as a prima facie goal. Um, right. I, I think that's frankly a little silly. Um, only for the same reason that in the ecosystem, I would say, you know, we can't, I can't rotate the animals the same way this year because it's different. Um, right. You know, human society is a dynamic system as well. And so, uh, you know, just a, a, a traditionalism as the exclusive guiding factor, I think falls far short. Um, yeah, now, totally. how in the world do you resolve that? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it, it certainly involves intuition. Um, I don't think that resolution process itself is explicable which becomes problematic but um that's that's how it is i think yeah yeah i agree um okay so final question i'm going to quote you back to you um something you said to me once um self-sufficiency is not a journey is no sorry it's a journey not a destination it's a verb describing a state of being not a noun describing a place you don't get there you become it um end quote so my question is, do you have advice for people looking for whatever, a more connected existence, something, something positive to move toward? Um, you know, how do you, how do you take those first steps? Uh, honestly, Just go like, do it. Yeah. Just right. go get hands on. Like that's, that's the answer. Go like whatever it is. There's, there isn't an it that's, that's too small to be meaningful. Um, you don't have to do it right. It doesn't matter if you do it right. I think what matters is, is doing it. Um, I, I, that, that quote makes me cringe because obviously, you know, the same term can't be both a noun and a verb, but I think, you know, we understand the, the, the point, right? Like the intention is, it, it is more about um, being, being, a, being a, a state than a destination. And, and that, I, that I think is right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the advice is uh, go get your hands dirty. Yeah. And also find other people doing it. Like, cause there's always some, yeah. There's so many people in the world. There's always some weirdo who likes the thing you like. If it's like, you know, for, forging metal or something, whatever it is, totally. you'll find some other weird person who likes that and wants to teach you or whatever. And the internet is good for that, right? Yeah. It may be destroying our civilization as we speak, but it is also really good at letting you find a similar weirdo, which is a <laughs> wonderful, wonderful property. Trace, do you have any, do you have a final question for Josh? I do not. Uh, I've been the super weirdo kind of creeping at the edges here, listening to everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is an amazing conversation. Thank y'all so much for uh, for having it. All right. So Josh, super fun. we're going to follow our um, normal tradition of cutting off um, the podcast in the middle of somebody's sentence. So I'm going to let you have the last sentence. I mean, before you do that, there's just one critical thing that everybody needs to understand. And that is...
blank. You, you <laughs> cut. cut there because I don't even have the, the fake thing. Um, <laughs> oh my god, that was very smart. That was very smart. <laughs>